So the subject of our talk tonight, my talk tonight, is taking another look. I'd like to talk about a a little bit of the, an overview of this journey we have embarked on and some of the ways in which this journey has been described and some of the aspirations or intentions of why we are doing this and why we are doing it in the way that we are doing it. The poet and artist William Blake said, If the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear as it is, infinite. For man has closed himself up till he sees all things through the narrow chinks of his cavern. For people have closed themselves up till they see all things through the narrow chinks of their cavern. And this is a a description that we can perhaps relate to. This is a description of our condition when we walk into uh, our first foray into meditation. And in many ways we could say this is a journey of cleansing our perception, our view of reality. This is the journey of practice. Mindfulness is sometimes described as a process of purification, cleansing. When we come on retreat, our whole life walks in the door with us and sits down on the cushion with us. We don't check our problems at the gate, do we? Perhaps you've noticed. We may have an, uh, an image of meditation that we will leave all of that behind and peace will be with us. Well, by now on the retreat, two full days of sitting, you may have experienced some moments of peace, some hours of peace perhaps, and that is a good thing. But we, you may also undoubtedly have noticed how many of your life issues are bubbling to the surface, how many stories you are uh, being asked to feel and look at whether you want to or not. Many things arise as we sit, concerns, decisions about uh, life direction, family matters, health concerns problems on your job, problems with your relationship, what to do about this, unresolved business, concerns about the world, about war, about terrorism, about the direction of our country. All of these come in to our practice, do they not? We carry so much inside of us, and it all begins to come up as we sit. It takes a while on a meditation retreat, even for those who have sat before, many times before, to settle down and begin to notice what it is, actually, that is coming up to the surface, what it is that actually is 
sweeping us away despite our best intentions to just be present and follow the breath. The Buddha talked about three primary energies that actually fuel or drive our lives as human beings. They are the hidden driving force behind much of our suffering. These are the energies of greed, very much what Howie was talking about last night, this this force of wanting in the mind, pursuing what we think will bring relief. Sometimes greed is called tanha, that's a Pali word in the Pali language. It means insatiable thirst, the greed of insatiable thirst, meaning it can never really be satisfied. Always wanting more, always thirsty for more. That is a primary force in all of human life. And we can see its results in the world, in our own lives and in the world around us. The next of these three primary forces is that of aversion or hatred or not liking, not wanting certain things to be present. And so trying to rid ourselves of what we don't like the force of aversion can lead uh, in its extreme to violence, to the belief that killing is the way to make the world peaceful, to get rid of what we don't like. It can also manifest in many more subtle ways as a kind of aversive feeling you have about yourself or about other people that you want to avoid or uh, ignore or um, judge. Judging is a form of aversion, as is fear. Fear is a form of aversion, not liking something, wanting to get rid of it, so that, again, we will have that feeling of finally being safe or having a feeling of relief that Howie spoke of last night. This force of aversion we can see manifest in many ways, in ourselves and in our world. The third force the Buddha spoke about is that of ignorance, or sometimes translated as a sense of bewilderment, bewilderment, a confusion about where we are and what's happening and not really being connected with ourselves, not really being connected with reality, and so tending to space out, tending to go off into fantasy, into speculation, into theory, preferring to live in a world of theoretical assumptions than actually being here and seeing clearly. Now, it's also said in the Buddhist tradition that These forces represent three types of people. 
and that we each fall a little more heavily into one type. We all carry all of these energies in us, but that one of these types, one of these forces will predominate in our bodies, in our minds, in our personalities. So if we might give an example of these three types, each going to the same event, maybe a party is being given, and the greed type walks in the door, and how do they respond, typically? The greed type walks in the door and immediately sees everything it wants and likes in the situation. And it immediately goes about finding the most pleasurable and uh, what will be most satisfying to, to him or her. In the same event, the aversive type walks in the door and immediately sees what he or she doesn't like, immediately sees perhaps what is wrong with the situation and how to get rid of or avoid having any contact with that which is not liked. The third type, the ignorant type, walks in the room, same party, same event, and kind of cluelessly looks around and doesn't quite know what to do. So perhaps they're influenced by a greed type or an aversive type to you know, follow them around. They're just kind of there, and it's kind of clueless as to what, what direction to pursue. Now, these are, um, these are offered because... It's interesting that the same situation can be perceived so differently. The same situation, three different uh, orientations or interpretations of reality, each with its own rather narrow perspective on the situation, rather limited perception of what is occurring. We could even call each of these three um, orientations a kind of trance that we can observe in ourselves. When we are lost in greed, it's like we go into a trance where all we see is what we want and how to get it. There's that old saying, when a pickpocket meets a saint, all he sees are the saint's pockets. It's that sense of limited vision of what is right in front of one, where one only pursues what one wants. Or if you're an aversive type, you're only pursuing how to get rid of that which you don't want, which you don't like. And these trance states actually alter our perception of reality, alter our perception of ourselves and of other people and of the entire situation. So that we are, like William Blake said, seeing all things through the narrow chinks of our cavern, of our limited perception. Our practice 
then, in this metaphor, is a process of coming out of the trance, waking up to our own trance, whatever trance we are in, the trance of of greed, aversion, ignorance, of jealousy, of fear, of anger, of regret, remorse, (coughs) impatience, whatever is gripping us is a kind of trance. And the practice is a process of waking up out of that, cleansing our perception and seeing what is true, opening our perception to a more inclusive view of reality. Now, in a retreat, in this silence and in this stillness, our habits of thinking and feeling, all these mental states that are like trances, begin to very much stand out, do they not? And we may begin to realize things about ourselves. We may begin to feel, I didn't know I was so fearful. I didn't know I was so judgmental. I didn't know I was so angry, or I didn't know that I'm so filled with guilt and remorse. All these things begin to reveal themselves to us, and sometimes we're quite uh, surprised because we suddenly recognize something that has been in us probably for some time, but we hadn't really seen it clearly before. It is said that mindfulness, this practice of attention to the moment has three functions. The first is to know the mind, to recognize all that which, all which is all that is arising in the mind, to know the mind, to know that what is present is arising out of the mind, and to begin to recognize what is there. So the first few days of a retreat are like catching up with ourselves, where we begin to see actually what is present. We begin to know the mind in this sense. The second function of mindfulness is said to be that of to shape the mind, of shaping the mind. That means that as we pay attention... And as our perception of reality opens and becomes clearer, we actually have the opportunity not to get so lost in our habitual, our habitual patterns, to see and respond to what we see in ourselves in a new way, that we are actually learning new habits as we sit and as we see. And the third function of mindfulness is that of liberating the mind. Once we have recognized what is in the mind, once we have seen that we have this capacity to shape the mind, that it's not, um, we're not, we don't need to be victims of all of our past habits, but that we have an opportunity to redo old habitual ways of thinking and feeling, we also have this experience directly of beginning to free ourselves from the 
grip of these trance states. So in this capacity that we that is waking up as we sit here to see more clearly and completely what is arising in the present, we are beginning this process of transforming what are these obscuring forces of mind into objects of meditation, rather than seeing them as something that is obscuring our practice and is um, preventing us from seeing clearly, we begin to see the forces of greed, of aversion, of ignorance, actually can become the very objects of our mindfulness practice. We can begin to be curious about them. We can begin to notice them. We can begin to recognize them when they arise. We begin to relate to them rather than get lost in them. And this is an enormous shift in our sense of the practice and in our sense of the possibilities of this path. We're sitting and fear arises. And fear is very convincing, isn't it? Fear arises, it has a story to tell us, and before you know it, we are completely in its grip. We're believing everything it tells us. We're in this trance of fear. Over time, we begin to see that instead of getting lost in the fear, we can begin to recognize fear as fear, and we can begin to cultivate a relationship with fear. And that is a tremendous step in our practice. It's also true, you know, we, we, we learn a few things up here as teachers, and it's also true that we, we can sit for a very long time in, in meditation halls and, you know, hear instructions from teachers and sort of hear the instructions, but just keep on with whatever we're thinking about. I mean, we have more important things to do than actually listen to the instructions and apply them. We have all this other stuff to kind of, you know, slog through. And it is interesting to notice that we often uh, hear the instructions and yet we don't really apply them to ourselves. I have seen this, and so it is worth mentioning. You might just... It, because it's, it, you know, some of these forces of mind are very deeply entrenched in us, and we don't want to give them up. We don't want to stop thinking about the past or planning our future. It's like, no, I, I, I'm, I'm just leave me alone. I just have to think about this for a little longer, and then maybe I'll do some, some of what you're suggesting. And you might just check in with yourself and see if that is the case. Just notice, not to judge yourself, but just to be honest with yourself. Am I really, you know, like actually doing what's being suggested here, or am I just kind of cruising on my habitual ways of thinking and feeling. What is true that over time 
Once we begin to shine this little light of awareness inside, even if it's only in moments, it has a power to it. It has a power to it, and it begins to show us more and more of what is inside. And as this happens, it catches our curiosity. The more we see, the more interesting it actually becomes. And the more we, even despite ourselves, begin to notice things about what is occurring. This awakening will happen if you sit still and pay attention. There is a a translation of the word mindfulness that is interesting because it really points to the fact that this quality of wakefulness is always very close at hand. That awareness is, is all, the awareness that is always with us cannot be lost so easily. The word mindfulness comes from the Pali language. And in Pali, it is called satipatthana. In the Pali language, sati, the word sati means remembering remembering. And the word patana means already present. Already present. So putting those two together, we could say that mindfulness, in one translation, is remembering that which is already present. We are not remembering something or constructing something that is not with us, but we are remembering this awareness that is always close at hand, that is always right there if we are willing to let the light shine in. So this is one metaphor for this process that we are, have undertaken, this cleansing and opening of the doors of perception through shining the light of awareness inside over and over again. The more we look, the more we see, and the more things, our perception of what is true begins to clarify and open. Another metaphor for this journey of practice comes from the idea of exploration and how it is that for many hundreds of years people used to think the world was flat until some brave sailors set out and determined to go to the ends of the earth and to discover what was there. And in their bravery, in their courage, they discovered that, no, the world is not flat, that if you keep on sailing, you come around. Oh, it's round. It's not flat. It's round. And so this was a huge shift in people's perception 
of what they were inhabiting, that this planet was round. And then in my lifetime, not perhaps all of yours, but in my lifetime, I remember when, during the Kennedy years in the 60s, we put a man on the moon for the first time. I remember the night that that we saw it on television, and it was such an amazing thing, a, a giant step for humankind, that there was this other view of our planet, because now we had somebody on the moon who could take pictures and show them to us. And there we saw it, this magical shining little jewel of a planet suspended in all this velvet dark space and that was our earth and that was such an expansion in our view of what we are inhabiting here that we are on this living organism called Gaia called earth and that is our home our view has changed our view of the universe and in our, of our place in it. In the same way, we could say that inside each of us are these unexplored worlds. We have views about what's inside. And when we begin to practice, it may seem daunting, scary, um, perhaps worthless, to look inside, to to spend so much time looking inside and trying to see what is, what is there. And just like the people who imagined the earth was flat, we may fear getting lost or falling off into some dark void never to be found again. <laughs> we may have a lot of feelings of disorientation as we look inside, of sort of you know, uh, what's going to happen if I get this quiet, this silent, if I don't have another thought? Come on, let's think a little. We have to fill this, you know, we we may just not know what we are entering, this unexplored world. Well, we are here as your coaches and teachers to tell you that there is nothing inside that we need to be afraid of if seen in the right way. We don't need to be afraid of what we find inside. It is all workable from the point of view of practice. Whatever we find, however scary or seemingly strange, it is workable. Many have been on this path before us and have showed us that it is all workable. And we have discovered that in our own practice and we can say that with some confidence to you, that whatever you discover, however disoriented you may at times feel or fearful you may feel, it is all workable. And in the search, we are again opening our view, all the ways in which we perceive and think about ourselves in the world begin to open as we enter these unexplored worlds within. The writer Marcel Proust, we do not receive wisdom 
we must discover it for ourselves. After a journey through the wilderness, which no one else can do for us, which no one can spare us. For our wisdom is the view from which we come at last to see the world. And it is a journey that we each must make through the wilderness, on our own, on our own little cushion. This is what we are doing, is we are discovering a wise view of our lives. So whenever we are challenged in our practice, can we see this as an opportunity for opening, for expanding our view, for including more information, for letting go of that which is no longer, we see is no longer a a valid view? In the Buddhist tradition, right view is the first step on the Eightfold Path, which are areas of life that we give attention to when we take up a Buddhist practice. The Eightfold Path consists of eight areas of exploration, areas to include in our practice right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration, all the rights. Now this does not mean right as opposed to wrong, but right in the sense of being in harmony with reality. Right in that sense, that these areas when we are living them in harmony with reality, we are on the path. We are in accord with, the, with ourselves and with the world. Sometimes they're called wise view, wise intention, wise speech, wise action. Same areas. So right view is the beginning of this aligning ourselves with reality, with coming into harmony with reality. And it, it's, it, the, whole, the whole thrust of our practice, you could say, is an aligning of ourselves with this harmonious way of being in the world through right view. It is vision which, include, which is inclusive of all possible... It, it, it doesn't exclude anything. And it is also impersonal. It is not subjective and quirky and, and personal. It is an impersonal understanding. It is, true, it is true for not only myself but for all beings. In that sense, it is not biased or prejudiced. And in all of our lives, we can look at many ways in which our view has broadened as we have grown up, we have traveled, we have studied, we have had relationships, we've had families, we've, we've grown in our view of things over the years. 
But the most significant change I would say in my life, the most significant change of you has come from this practice, from retreat practice. So I'd like to speak about some of the ways in which this practice really shifts our view. And it is only practice which shifts our view. The reading, we can do reading, we can read Dharma books, we can have conversations about practice, but until we really apply ourselves, until we really sit down and do the practice, this shift doesn't really become part of who we are. So as we practice on retreat, the first shift that is worth mentioning is that we are learning through making contact with our direct experience. And this is a very different way of learning than most of us um, have been trained in. In school, we learn mostly from reading or study. In this way of practice, we are learning by observing our own experience and trusting what we learn that way. This kind of learning can never be um, taken from us because once we have learned something, like, wow, when you look inside, things are always changing. When you have learned that from your own direct experience, nobody can talk you out of it. Nobody can say, you know, that's not really true. There's nothing changing here. Because you have looked inside and you know from your own experience the truth of change. So that knowledge is then in you somewhere. It is yours. We also learn something about the significance of the present moment and how our lives are being lived in the present. When we are in the present, we may think about the past, we may think about the future, but the aliveness of our life is always to be found here in the now. And that is a very significant change in our view of where to look for Uh, the expression of our life, where to look for the aliveness of our being, where to look for the answer to all that we want to know, to look in the present. That is a significant shift in our view of what is the most important reference point in our world. Another thing that really begins to wake up in us, in us, and how we touched on it somewhat last night, is that because we live in a consumer culture where we are conditioned to feel like we don't have enough, that who we are is not enough, that um, we need more, there's sort of a conditioning in the scarcity model we live in this kind of trance of scarcity that we always need more than what, what we are or who we are. And in this practice, we begin to sense the opposite. 
we begin to sense the sufficiency that we find inside, even in the face of our most difficult problems, even in the face of difficult mind states. We begin to sense that we have been given all that we need, that who we are is enough, that we don't need to do more or have more or know more, that everything we need is to be found if we are willing to look inside. A teacher, Wang Po, tells us, our essential nature is empty and allows everything to pass through. It is quiet and at rest. It is illuminating. It is peaceful and productive of bliss. When you have within yourself a deep insight into this, you immediately realize that all, you, all that you need is there in perfection and in abundance, and nothing is at all wanting or lacking in you. Nothing is at all wanting or lacking in you. We touch this as we practice, this sense of abundance inside, of sufficiency. Another very significant shift in view comes about in our relationship with what the Buddha called dukkha, that which is difficult to bear, that which all human beings throughout recorded time have found difficulty in bearing, that there is this inherent unsatisfactoriness which human beings experience in their lives, There are the torments of having a body, the torments of this mind, this untrained mind. And that all human beings at some point bump into this feeling of things just not being satisfactory and not being able to find relief. A wise woman was asked, what is the way to respond to suffering and discontent in our lives? She answered, there are those who will meet pain and discontent as they would an enemy. Some will rage at the world. They will find someone to blame, thinking only in terms of fault. There are those who will bewail their fate, saying, what have I done to deserve this? Why does sorrow always happen to me? Then there are those who will blame themselves, saying, I am such a worthless person, no wonder I suffer. There are also those who will meet pain and discontent, not as an enemy, but as a teacher. Not as an enemy, but as a teacher. In the face of suffering, they will follow the path of the wise, asking, What lies at the roots of this discontent, and what is the means to its end? And this is a huge shift in our view, that we can actually see what is difficult in our lives as not as an enemy, but as a teacher, that we can learn 
from meeting our suffering. We can learn from meeting the pain in our knee or the ache in our back. We can learn from meeting our impatience, our judgment, our fear, our discontent, that these are objects of meditation, not torments. Achan Shah, who is a kind of a grandfather of this tradition, he was Jack Cornfield's teacher, said, if you have an itch on your leg, you don't scratch your ear. <laughs> this means that it is important to locate, to recognize the source of our suffering. You know, many times we're suffering and we think, it's that person who's doing it to me. Or... You know, if I only could find the right posture, then it would work. But rather to see where the suffering is coming from in our very own hearts and minds. To understand that it is coming from within. That we cannot find those solutions outside of ourselves. Over time, something very profound does happen in in our change of attitude towards that which is difficult in our lives. There's a woman who was a longtime practitioner, Sandy Boucher. She wrote a book, actually, about her experience of receiving the diagnosis of, of breast cancer. So she writes this. She said, when I receive the news of cancer... I understood, oh yes, what is required of me now is that I be fully present. To each new experience as it comes and that I engage with it as completely as I can. I don't mean that I said this to myself, nothing so conscious as that. I mean that my whole being turned and looked and moved toward the experience. That speaks of many years, I think, of practice, the willingness to turn and look directly in the face of suffering, to recognize, oh, this is what the Buddha was talking about. This is dukkha. It's not that I've done something wrong or that I'm the victim of a particularly bad fate. This is just dukkha. This is suffering. This is something to learn from. This is a teacher in my life appearing right now. The Buddhists spoke about these four noble truths, and I'm going to walk us through each one very briefly. But I want to mention that with each truth that he presented, he also gave a practice. So the practice of the first noble truth, that of that there is this quality of discontent in our lives, the practice there is to recognize it, to see it, to not run away from it, to see, ah, this is, this is suffering. The second noble truth, that there is a cause of our discontent, there is a cause of suffering. We want things to be different than they are. What Howie was speaking about last night, the search, 
the search that takes us out of the present moment, looking for the solution to this discontent. We want things to be different than they are right now. Right now in your experience, chances are there's something you can see in your experience right now that you would like to be different. Is this not true? It's very common. So our practice is about seeing that this wanting is taking us away from the present. It is taking us outside of ourselves to look for a solution. So to see the cause of our suffering and to see what is required of us, what practice is required in the face of this, is letting go. Letting go, letting go of the wanting it to be different. What would that be like to let go of wanting it to be different? Okay, I'm here. I accept right now this breath, this moment. This is the way it is right now. No different. Just this. Again, a very big shift in our view The shortest meditation instruction in the world would be sit down and let go. And when I first started practice, I did some Zen practice for some years. And in Zen, they don't give you too many instructions. They give very pith instructions. And so the only instruction I remember ever receiving in the Zen tradition would be at the beginning of a sashin, a retreat, they would shout into the zendo, die on the pillow, die on the pillow. And I would sit there, I had not a clue, you know. It seemed like they really meant it to be important, but I, I would think, okay, here we go, die on the pillow, you know. It wasn't exactly clear to me how to do that. <clears throat> How to let go? We don't know. We, you know, it sounds good, let go, okay. But we don't know how to let go. So in our practice, we discover letting go. So don't be discouraged if you think you're supposed to know how to do it. The first clue is awareness. Bringing that quality of seeing, of recognizing, of being with something. Oh, this is fear. In that very movement towards it, in that very recognition of fear, the process of letting go is beginning. When we bring awareness to something, we are creating less clinging, less stickiness, We're not so caught. We're not so lost. We are actually creating a a place where letting go seems almost possible. Now, we may have to do that many, many times. And we will do that many times. So here's a story. To encourage us in our letting go practice, this is a, a Chinese monk who in the 70s, moved to rural Tennessee, where he attracted a small but devoted group of students associated with a nearby university. 
When the monk first came to Tennessee, he lived in a cabin in the in the sort of rural countryside, and there was a huge dead oak tree in the yard beside his cabin. One of his neighbors happened by and said, you'd better cut that thing down, or one of these days it's going to fall on your roof. Oh, thank you, said the monk. The next time he went into town, he bought a hatchet at a thrift store. He promptly set to work on the tree's enormous trunk, chopping away for some time every morning and showing no signs of discouragement at his minimal progress. Big tree, small hatchet. Neighbors, seeing him working day after day, showed up with chainsaws, offering to cut it down for him. (laughs) Thank you, no, said the monk. I do it my way. This went on for months. Months. With such regularity that if his neighbors didn't hear the steady chop, chop, chop of the monk on his tree on any given morning, they'd come over to make sure he was all right. One day, the tree finally fell with a crash that shook all the houses on his street. He later said that this was the way he taught his students meditation. You just chop away a little bit every day, and one day an enormous tree falls. And that is our practice of mindfulness. Each moment of bringing that clarity, just to see, just to be with, is another chop in the tree. And you don't know when the tree's going to fall. There's no guarantee here, but over time it will give way. Achan Shah said, do everything with a mind that lets go. Do everything with a mind that lets go. What would that be like? Sometimes our letting go is this slow process. Sometimes it happens traumatically. Sometimes we are forced to let go through loss or death or illness or trauma, accidents. And this is a a kind of shock to the system where we feel grief and despair. And this needs to be also needs to be allowed and lived with, this kind of shocking letting go. It may take a lot of time and patience until the day comes when we are ready to feel the letting go is complete and we can again pick up our lives, begin again. Because after the letting go, there is this natural process of once again beginning Life gives us both. Both are included in the curriculum, the letting go, and then eventually the beginning again. So the second noble truth very much has to do with letting go. The third noble truth, that there is in this letting go, there is an end to suffering. There is an end to suffering. It it follows inevitably. And with the end of suffering comes a taste of the fruits of that process, a taste of the lightening of our burden, a taste of freedom. 
And this is a significant moment and one to be fully tasted and known, to feel the fruits of letting go. The practice of this third truth is that of realizing the end of suffering. Wow, no suffering. And letting ourselves get used to that fact. Achanamaro writes about this in a somewhat humorous way. He says, um, this is a common experience. When we let go of something, suffering ceases. But we often ignore that fact and go looking for the next thing instead. We don't, as the expression goes, taste the nectar, the juice of our letting go. We just zoom through the juice bar. We keep going because it looks like there's nothing here. It looks kind of boring. No lust or fear or other issues to deal with. We think, I'll be being irresponsible if I'm not dealing with my issues. Quick, let's go and find something to deal with. So out of the best of intentions, we fail to taste the juice that's right there. The delicious juice of realizing that things do end, that suffering can be released, and that we can rest in that realization. The fourth noble truth is that of the Eightfold Path, which I mentioned, which is to be cultivated, which is to be reflected on, to be learned, to be walked, to be lived, actually. Wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood, wise effort, all of these become part of our world, part of our understanding of a harmonious way of being. These are to be um, cultivated, worked with. So we, in reviewing the Four Noble Truths, to recognize suffering to let go of clinging, grasping, wanting, to realize the fruits of letting go, and to cultivate the path of wisdom. All of these are a shift in our understanding of what life, what the possibilities of this life are. The Buddha said over and over, I teach one thing and one thing only, And that is the truth of suffering and the end of suffering. (coughs) That is what he emphasized, and that is what we are practicing here. Perhaps the most fundamental shift in view which occurs with practice is the view of who and what we are. The nugget that holds this whole sense of identity together. We come to Spirit Rock as John Smith or Mary Jones to have a spiritual experience. Our spiritual life is often seen as an addition to our already busy lives. We are strongly identified with our body and our personality as being who we are. 
But from the Buddhist point of view, this is not correct. In the Buddhist view, we are actually fundamentally already realized beings having a human experience. When we are born, we put on the body and are given a personality, and the game is to remember our true identity, to not be deceived by our conditioning into forgetting who and what we actually are. And to, learn not, and to learn not only to remember our true nature, but how to manifest it skillfully through this body, through this mind and personality. Again, Achanamaro. We see ourselves in terms of the limitations of the body and the personality, and we define what we are within those bounds. But a lot of what the practice is doing is deconstructing this idea. Rather than taking the body and personality as the defining features of what we are, we take the Dharma as the basic reference point of what we are. The body and personality are recognized as little windows that the Dharma nature filters through. Through the matrix of the body, personality, and our mental faculties, the nature of reality is realized. So that is a much bigger view than the ordinary view of what we are doing here and what the possibilities of this life are. Do I think I'll stop there? Thank you for your attention. A lot of words. Take what is useful and let go of anything that is not useful. Let's sit together for a moment. This talk was given by Anna Douglas at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on June 24, 2004. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.